listener. Welcome to this week's episode of the Better Than Vine podcast. I'm your host, Darlene Marshall. And if you are a fan of the musical Hamilton, if you have even seen or heard the musical Hamilton, you might recall it's one of my favorite moments in the show. Uh, and I was a big musical nerd. I used to be an actor. I was a musician for a long time. So, so bear with me through this intro. But you might recall this moment in the show where Alexander Hamilton, title character, Obvs, is meeting for the very first time the Schuyler sisters, one of the main characters of the of the show. And brazen, young, brash, bold Alexander Hamilton, who totally understands that if he is going to be successful in life, he is going to need some leverage, some financing, and he's going to have to marry up. So he's got to catch somebody's attention. And he boldly tells Angelica, you've never been satisfied. And it's this really great, juicy moment in the show where she feels really seen by this guy for the first time. It really stands out in my mind. And then that then becomes a theme in the show around the idea of never being satisfied, always needing more, always needing to climb and work harder and strive for more and eventually I'm not giving in too much away. If you've never seen it, go watch. It's on, I think, Disney Plus. You should totally go watch Hamilton. I'm not going to give it away. But it eventually obviously causes some trouble, as, you know, any kind of strengths overuse does. But this theme, this theme's been coming up. I know I talk about this on the show a lot, that oftentimes these episodes on a topic are because it's coming up with my clients. And I generally run on the assumption that if something is coming up in clients or in a workshop or with my friends, it's not going to be just them. They're just like the little slice of the world that I interact with that I pull inspiration from for episodes. And lately, maybe five times in the last like two weeks, which is a lot. It's a high frequency for a single topic. This idea is coming up with clients that they just don't feel satisfied. They are climbing the achievement ladder. They have checked all of the boxes that you're supposed to have checked by whatever point in life they are. So they have a great job. They have a great education. Maybe they've got advanced degrees. They've got the partner. They've got the promotion. They've got, um, you know, the leadership role. They've got the certifications. They've got the kids. They've got the cool hobbies. Eh. So what gives? Maybe this is you too. Maybe it's the aftermath of pandemic. Maybe it's middle age. Maybe it's Maybelline, but maybe it's something else. And today on the show, I want to take a look at the something else. I want to unpack with you this idea of satisfaction what does it mean to never be satisfied? People who are nerds about the show just got that reference. Um, but the rest of you, <laughs> what does it mean to have that feeling of, I did everything right. I did all the stuff I was supposed to do. I checked the boxes. I climbed the achievement ladder. And now we're here. And I don't really know what to do with how I feel here. And as I was preparing for this show and also how I've been responding to those clients about this, and I started exploring these ideas around satisfaction and feeling satisfied, 
And there is a tension in it that I want to own from the jump. And that tension being that there's often a fear. If we pursue satisfaction, we're going to also lose the drive to be high achieving. And Arthur Brooks talks about this a bit in his book, Strength to Strength, which is about that pivot moment where we've, we've peaked just before middle age in terms of our generative cognition, which tends to peak in our 30s. And then we start to pivot when we no longer have the same neuroplasticity, the same uh, malleability in the brain and the nervous system that we can just come up with these genius, incredible, new, exciting ideas. But that he describes the strength of that second half of life being wisdom, what he calls crystallized intelligence versus earlier in life, it's general um, uh, generative intelligence. Crystallizing intelligence is where we are able to take all of those great ideas we've generated and learned and we can put them together in insightful ways. But there's a fear I often encounter in high achievers and entrepreneurs and the people who, you know, built their brand, built themselves on being the generator person, that if they let themselves feel satisfied, then they won't have the drive. And so a little bit what we're going to talk about today is why that's actually a fallacy. But I want to own it up front that that is one criticism of this idea this fear of if we let ourselves feel satisfied, am I not going to be the person that drives the bus, drives it forward, pushes it hot anymore? And it's just, it's just not true. So let's start looking at what is this thing? What is this, I, what's getting in the way of our satisfaction? And for that, I want to start with what we're culturally taught most of us, most of the people who are listening to the sound of my voice very likely grew up in westernized environments, obviously English speaking. As far as I know, this podcast is not being translated into any other languages. If you're listening to it in anything other than English, geez, please reach out and let me know. Um, but generally, most of our audience by the data that we get off the podcasting apps is westernized, uh, you know, America, Europe. Canada, North American. And culturally, those environments tend to be that we are taught that if we climb that achievement ladder, if we build all that success, then we're going to be happy, right? We get to rest on our loyals and feel satisfied then. But as I mentioned, the people who are telling me I don't feel it have done those things. They've done those things at sometimes really high levels. We're talking about PhDs from some of the best schools in the world and um, high level leadership at some of the biggest name companies that you might know. So they did that already. What's the deal? Well, we know from a, a significant body of evidence, a good chunk of it out of Harvard, that tells us that there is a fallacy in that equation. That it's not that people who achieve all the success, they check all the boxes, are just magically happier. It's actually that the people who feel happy, who feel positive emotional experience, they're better adaptive to achievement. And so they do better long-term because they are happy, because they are well. So I think that this achievement ladder thing has been handed down to us along with concepts like things like the American dream, right? The American dream used to be that 
you get a good job, preferably a union job. Maybe you get a pension, you get retirement, you get all those things. Like you have the security of all of that. You get the partner who hopefully is a lot of fun, is at least someone you can like build a family with. And then you build that family, you know, two to three kids and a dog. And you've got that suburban life. But if we really dig into it a little deeper, what we find is that there was this, there's a lot of fallacies in there, right? The keeping up with the Joneses, the striving for more. I gotta, I gotta keep going and climbing. And what that actually does for us is something called hedonic adaptation. And hedonic adaptation is what gets in our way. We're going to break that down in a second. You're listening to the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm your host, Darlene Marshall. We're talking about what's it take to actually let yourself feel satisfied? What gives us satisfaction so that we can actually enjoy our lives? And why does that not get in the way of success? Why does that actually breed more success? We'll get to all that in a second. But first, let's talk about hedonic adaptation. So maybe you've heard the word hedonism or hedonist. Same root word, hedonic, comes from Aristotle. Yes, the ancient philosopher Aristotle. Aristotle said that there were two kinds of happiness. The first kind of happiness was in pursuit of pleasure. And he called that hedonism. So hedonism is when we are consistently prioritizing pleasure as our generator of happiness. And I'm not here to give you a value judgment on it. Generally in our culture, we are perpetuating the idea that a hedonist is someone, you know, hedonism is bad, but it's not necessarily bad. It's when it gets out of the box that it's out of control. And that is the hedonic adaptation thing. So do you know that thing when you are sitting in your kitchen and you don't hear the sound of the refrigerator buzzing because you've adapted to that sound? What you would notice is if the power suddenly cut out and that humming went away, then you'd notice because the environment changed. So we adapt to the consistent stimulus around us. We get used to the hum of the refrigerator. We get used to seeing our partner every morning. We get used to the foods that we eat. And so when we experience some kind of pleasure, we get this rush of neurochemicals. But if we experience the same pleasure over and over and over again, we don't get the rush of chemicals anymore. We don't get the rush of pleasure because we've adapted to it. And a prime example of this is drugs, illicit drugs. You use the drug, you get the rush, depending on what the drug is, is what neurochemical you'll get the rush of. And eventually you adapt to that stimulus. You crave it, you want it. So then you use more and then you adapt and then you use more and then you adapt and then you use more and then you adapt. And this is how we perpetuate that cycle. So lots of things work this way. And what we find in the research on happiness is we're all cruising along at our like normal level of whatever our baseline is. You get the car, the cool partner. You go on a great date. You get uh, a promotion at work, whatever it is. You get the hit and then you normalize to it and you return back to baseline. And then you seek the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. 
And if you're a high achiever, if you're like super type A and you've like gone to all the best schools and you got the great job and you did it, the boxes need to get bigger and bigger checks in them in order to give you the yeah. And that's hedonic adaptation. You've now adapted to the pleasure, to the achievement, to the Yahtzee moment, to the point that you don't even feel it anymore. So what do we do? What do we do with that? What do we do if the success equation is inverted and we're adapting? Well, we can take a look at Aristotle's other theory around happiness. So there's hedonic happiness, and then there's what Aristotle called eudaimonic. And a lot of positive psychology is built on the idea of eudaimonic well-being, eudaimonic happiness. And eudaimonia is when our happiness is built on our values, our purpose, what's meaningful in our life. And yes, there's going to be some pleasure in there. We need it. We need it to be happy. But the pillars of our well-being aren't this the constant pursuit of like Dionysian indulgence. So what's that look like? Well, as you might imagine, there's not a lot of very clear framework on like, this is what satisfaction is. And the reason is because humans are variable. Not everything works for everybody all the time. Not everything is going to make everybody satisfied in the same way. So the things that make me feel satisfied, which being a big old ridiculous nerd who like loves movement practice is not what necessarily makes like my brother satisfied. My brother uh, is a gamer who likes sitting on the couch and playing with his kids. Not that I don't like playing with his kids. It's super fun. But for him to feel satisfied is a different equation, even though like genetically we're very similar, right? Even though we have the same upbringing, even though we're very close, he needs something else. You might need something else and somebody else. So I want to unpack a set of factors that influence our satisfaction. And then we can take a look at like maybe some loose steps to help you figure it out for yourself if this is something that you're struggling with. You're listening to the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm your host, Arlene Marshall. And we're taking a look at what are the things that lead toward satisfaction? What are the things that get in the way of satisfaction? And how can each of us figure out how to let ourselves feel satisfied in our lives? So we've already talked about the achievement fallacy. Why does that get in the way? Why does it that we don't just like check all the boxes and then we feel great for the rest of our lives? Actually, it's the people who are happy and tend to have it figured out that tend to do better long term when we think about the well-being stuff, the life satisfaction stuff, the happiness stuff. So these factors, from in my mind, it starts with what actually matters in your life. What are your values? What do you care about? Because the things I care about might not be what does it for you. And, you know, little side tangent, I see this a lot in like the fitness and wellness influencer space, you know, that like self-care guru, self-helpy person. Those types of people who are not subject matter experts, they're not actually trained in what we're talking about. They tend to say, well, this is what I do. So you do it because there's a, there's an assumption there 
that like, hey, if it worked for me, here you go. Go nuts. That's how you get the thing. But that's not how humans work. So if you pull back and you look at what actually matters to you, what do you actually care about? And the question I use with my clients for this is what is the most important thing in your life right now? Three to six months, maybe a year. What's the most important thing at this phase in your life, at this moment in your life? And for some people, it's their health, it's their family, it's competition, it's achievement, it's their work, it's getting a degree, like whatever. It doesn't matter. But then the follow-up to that being, are you actually making time and space for it? Are you actually carving out the, the energy, the resources, and all different kinds of resources, not just money resources, to make that thing happen? Because if you know, if you've taken the time, invested the energy to figure you out, and, and it might take some time and energy to figure out what you actually value and need and want. You got to know yourself first. But if you've taken that time and then you're not living it, well, that's going to make you feel really unsatisfied. And I'm not saying living it is just easy. In many ways, it's a privilege. And I mean that sincerely. Like when you look mostly through human history and around the world, most humans do not have the indulgence of getting to really figure out like, who am I? What makes me tick? What's most important in my life? What are my values? And then get to execute on it. So what matters in your life right now is the first big thing. And, and Seligman, I just heard, Martin Seligman's the founder of Positive Psychology. I'm TAing for him this semester. And last week, he said this about positive psychology, that he's actually no longer really talking about um, meaning in the same way that he used to. Now what he's talking about is mattering. Like what matters to you or who do you matter to? And invest your energy there because not everyone needs the same things. Not everybody wants the same things. Not everyone's going to benefit from the same things. So from there, we can then invest in what are the experiences that are going to be meaningful in service of those values? And we know that when you invest time, energy, resources, money in experiences instead of stuff, you tend to have a more lasting positive experience. You tend to get a longer emotional boost and you have the opportunity to reflect back and enjoy it in hindsight, right? Like if you showed me a picture of my car, I bought my very first new-ish, I mean new-ish to me car last year. It was the first time I ever like went to a dealer and bought a car instead of buying it out of somebody's yard or driveway. That's all a story for another time. But I've hit a level of like success and stability that I could like go buy a new car. If you showed me a picture of my new car right now, I'd be like, yeah, that's my car. But if you showed me a picture of me and my niece on my last vacation laughing, fill me right up, right? Completely different response by investing in the experience of what I valued instead of the stuff. I needed the new car. I'm very proud of the new car but it doesn't give me the same emotional payoff and it shouldn't because it's just a thing. If you wanted to dive really deep on this experience thing, you're going to want to go check out the episode on savoring from November of 2023, uh, 
right around the holidays. We talked about why savoring was the most important thing you could do in the holidays, but it's got all the information about what savoring is, how you engage in it, why it really matters from an emotional experience. But when we talk about, whenever you see people say like invest in experiences instead of in things, part of what they're talking about is the presence, the awareness. And it's not just any experiences, right? Like I'm claustrophobic. I'm the experience of like going scuba diving is going to give me a panic attack. My dad's afraid of heights. Taking him rock climbing would be awful for him. So it's investing in the experiences that align with the values that you bothered to figure out already, right? So we've got what are your values and what actually matters in your life. We've got focusing on experiences instead of just like more stuff in the next checkbox. And I hope you've listened to some of the other content recently we've done around self-concordant goal setting and why you need to be self-aligned and arbitrary goals are not great. Like the experiences can't be arbitrary. The meaning can't be arbitrary. It has to be what's actually authentic in you. And from that authentic place, and savoring is part of this next one. So it kind of dovetails the savoring thing with the experience thing is intentional emotional practices. That's a whole class of things you've probably already heard of, probably already heard of some of these on this show. And this is when we make space and time to do things like a gratitude practice or loving kindness meditation. And what we're actually doing there is conditioning something called the default mode network. And I want you to think of the default mode network like the neutral gear of your brain. Uh, and if you've never driven an automatic transmission, right? Most people have driven standards at this point. I grew up in the country, so of course I know how to drive a stick. But if you've never driven an automatic transmission, when you're shifting gears in your car, the drivetrain, um, when you shift from, like, say, you're going from like low to high to a higher gear you actually go through neutral. And what you're doing is like disengaging the low gear, slipping through neutral, and then engaging the high gear in the drivetrain. The default mode network is neutral as you're transitioning gears. It's the space between thoughts. And, you know, again, quick side tangent, the way this was discovered used to think that the way the mind worked was you only, the neutral gear was just nothing. It was just empty. And the way it was discovered was in fMRI studies of the brain, somebody's sitting in an MRI, they're showing them a, a image, a stimulus, and then reset for a second, and then the next stimulus, and then reset for a second, and the next stimulus. And what they expected was in between the images or the stimulus, you just have nothing in the brain. And instead, the brain was still active. How is that possible? We're not giving you a stimulus. So shouldn't it be neutral? Wait, your brain has a neutral gear. And that gear is actually active. And that, that activity is called the default mode network. It's where your brain goes when it's got nothing to do. And if you're a ruminator, if you're somebody who has intrusive thoughts, you have um, you know, negative things that push into your mind, that's in the space between thoughts where your mind goes. So if you're not engaged in a flow state, if you're not plugged into working on something, you're thinking about that dumb thing that you said at the airport last night. You're remembering some horrible thing you did in junior high that was super cringe. That's your default net mode network popping up. 
Now, we, we there are pharmaceuticals that can create plasticity in the default mode network, allow it to change. But so does meditation. When we calm the nervous system, we create more malleability in the mind. And then we provide intentionally the feedback loop of gratitude, joy, loving kindness, appreciation, serendipity, like whatever it is. And then you're gradually, you know, malleably molding the, the shape of the mind where it's going to go. And over time, turning the curve of your thought. So if you're someone who wants to feel more satisfaction, meditation, calm moments, providing those stimuluses that shape the default mode network can help you get more accessibility to that positive emotional experience. Savoring being one of them. But it requires intentionality. It requires time. It requires an investment of your behavior, which I think is cool. I think it's cool. And this is always my argument for free will is that, yeah, maybe I can't control the next thought I'm going to have. That's Sam Harris's argument against free will. But I think because we can choose to shape our behavior and I can lean into the thought I'm going to have six months, a year from now by planting the seeds through meditation and mindfulness practice. Now, I think that's pretty neat. I think it's neat that we can shape ourselves that way. You're listening to the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm Natalie Marshall. We're talking about how can you feel more satisfied if you're struggling with that in your life right now? So you got to figure out your values. You got to figure out what you're on about, what matters to you. Maybe you could do some intentional reflective journaling. You can do some values analysis exercises. There's all kinds of things that you can do to really dive into what actually matters to me. What do I care about? Who do I care about? Seligman said in that class that just consider if you weren't here anymore, something happened that pulled you out of your life for a while. What are the groups, what are the people that you matter to that would be negatively affected? That's probably a good sign of where you want to invest your time and energy, right? Because you already matter to them and we want to contribute to them in a meaningful way. So figuring that stuff out, then what are the experiences that feed those things instead of the stuff? This is always why I say volunteer time, not money. Don't worry, give donations. Sure, I'm not saying don't donate money to support things, but experientially, it's very different to contribute with your sweat equity than it is with your dollars. Engage in intentional savoring or other positive emotional priming activities. And those three are all additive. But this last one, this last framework, step, idea, whatever you want to call it, because not everything's going to work for everybody. But this last little tidbit is not additive. It is reductive. And it starts with this idea of something called a supernormal stimulus. So we are all the product of our evolutionary ancestors. And our ancestors' neurophysiology adapted to the environment that they evolved in, right? We now live in a world where all kinds of things have been engineered to stimulate us more significantly than that evolutionary process. And the word for that is a super normal stimulus. Let me give you some examples. If I eat ultra processed foods, 
I'm get, they're going to be sweeter and have more calories without nutrients than if I eat a naturally occurring food. That's a super normal stimulus, right? It's bigger than normal. My phone, if I look at it at 10 p.m., it's going to be brighter with more blue light than what I evolved to experience after dark. Um, and the apps on my phone have been specifically engineered to cause more of a dopamine response than I would have experienced if I was out in the woods without technology. So all of these together are examples of this super normal stimulus that our modern lifestyle provides if, if it is running all willy-nilly all day long. Now let's talk about dopamine specifically for a second because it's, it's a neurochemical that gets thrown around a lot. I think it's really relevant to a conversation about satisfaction and supernormal stimulus. Dopamine is a reward hormone, neurochemical. And the way dopamine works is I want something really bad. So I seek it out and then I get the release of dopamine when I got the thing I wanted. Yeah. And when we have supernormal stimulus, at first we get that hit. But remember the hedonic adaptation thing. I'm going to need more and more and more supernormal stimulus to get more and more of that craving. And now I'm craving the thing, but it's the same stimulus. I'm not going to get the same dopamine hit, but I got a craving now I can't satisfy. And now I'm starting to have trouble regulating my focus and attention, putting thoughts together. So if I let the supernormal stimulus run rampant in my life, if I'm eating a lot of ultra processed foods, which again, we're going to do an episode on ultra processed foods very soon. I'm still working on it. I don't want to take it out of the box until it's ready. But generally I'll say we're a weight neutral show. We're not here to make shame, blame and guilt. But if a food has been engineered to provide a supernormal stimulus like the sugar, the palatability, the texture, the flavors. It's hijacking my neurochemistry. It's also messing with my gut. So just a quick preview of that episode. It's coming. I just want to get it right. So anyway, that supernormal stimulus, I have to seek more and more and more if I want the dopamine hit. But that also means that my environment is then conditioning me to never feel satisfaction. So the trick here, like I said, the other three factors we unpacked in this framework were all about what am I adding to my life, but regulating supernormal stimulus so that I have a normal dopamine response to missing my partner and they walk through the door and I'm so happy that they're there and I can actually be happy to see them. Or I can't wait to go on my vacation. And when I get on my vacation, I'm not spending the whole day just doom scrolling the gram because I've removed those experiences from my life in a way that they're out of the box, that they are causing me cravings that can't be satisfied in a normal way. So let's quickly just break this down into some steps. Of course, I want to hear questions. If you have them, don't hesitate to reach out because I know that this is a lot of different factors that we're trying to put together in useful and usable ways. So let's break them down. 
figure out what you're on about, right? What are your values? That's our first step because anything that's going to be meaningful is going to be based in what matters to you. Two, what are the actions that would mean to live those values? And how can you make them about experiences instead of about stuff? Three, do things that make you more sensitive to the good stuff. Loving kindness meditations, gratitude practices, savoring, exercise. We've talked about the mental health impacts of exercise on a chemical level on this show a lot. So go ahead and dig back into literally any of the movement episodes we've done. We've talked about this. So you can find that information there. And control for your dopamine hijackers. Curb the supernormal stimulus in your life through controlling what you choose to allow to stimulate you as opposed to just, you know, I'm just on my phone all day, bright lights and, uh, you know, sugar to the nines. And I genuinely believe that if we are living a life where we're spending our time invested in what matters, where we're controlling for all of the ways that we can be manipulated by our technology, our food, and not all the ways. Let me say that. Let me pull myself back on that statement. We are controlling for the controllables. I do think that we can make ourselves totally neurotic if we try to do all of it all the time. I don't think that's healthy either. That leans toward orthorexia. There's an orthorexia episode too. Check out the archive. But when we control for the controllables, when we mitigate the presence of those factors in our lives, that equation together creates the opportunity for us to enjoy, to savor, to feel satisfied at the end of the day, that we're living a a good life that is good for us, for you. Because it doesn't matter what I think the good life is for you. It matters what you think the good life is for you. And I think that that's in reach for many people. I would love, of course, to hear your questions, your comments, your concerns. I, I love the people who've reached out recently. Thank you so much for the positive feedback. Uh, it really does mean so much to me. Um, it can feel sometimes doing this show like, okay, I'm just I'm speaking into microphones, into the void of the internet. So when you reach out, uh, I read I read everyone. I don't always get back to everybody right away, but I, I, I will get back to you. Um, it just means a lot. So thank you. If you want to send an email like that, you can email me. It's info at darlene.coach. My Instagram is also darlene.coach and DM is a great way to get directly a hold of me. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, if you're a fan of the show, subscribe it, like it, share it, comment, do all the things. It really does help the show to grow. Uh, and I appreciate when you do that, especially when you tag me because it does make me so immensely happy. Uh, thank you so much. Send your questions. I want to hear from you. Take care and be well. Thank you.